Masechet Ketubot, Daf Kof Bet. We begin with the Mishnah on the previous Daf, which begins the 12th Perek. If a man marries a woman and he agrees that he will provide for her daughter, she already has a daughter from a previous man, and he, this new husband is going to provide food for the daughter for five years, he has to sustain her for five years no matter what. This seems like something obvious, and the Gemara is going to uh, present a more complex case to say that's not obvious it's teaching us a chidush okay but now it gets that's a simple case now it gets more complicated and he said now during those five years this first couple gets divorced sometime in the middle and she marries a second husband I mean this might be a third husband for her because she already has that woman but um, within our Mishnah it's the second husband and makes the same deal again that the second husband has to provide for her daughter from that previous marriage, same the same daughter for five years. So the law is Chayav Lezuna Hameshanim. This woman seems to be using marriages to provide continual uh, support for uh, child support for this daughter. Uh, but the the point is that the second one and the first one both have to sustain her for those five years, however much is overlapping. The first husband cannot say, well, if she comes to me, then she can come, you know, uh, look in my refrigerator and find something. No, even though she's not living with you, you have to go and bring the food. We're going to see in a minute, he's talking about money instead of food. Uh, you have to bring her sustenance to her place even though you're divorced from this woman and she the mother and the daughter are not living with you you have to go and provide her wherever she is living and also the two husbands the ex-husband and the, and the current husband cannot get together and say oh we'll share the burden right we both obligated ourselves to sustain her so fine we'll we'll share it i'll pay half i'll pay half we'll make sure she's taken care of and that way they can each pay half no whenever we say that a person the husband provides for her um it doesn't have to be with food it could be with the monetary equivalent and so therefore one of them will actually give a food and the other one will give money probably the one that she's currently living with will give the food and the other one will have to send money so she does get double she's going to make money out of the deal but that's what they agreed to it's just a monetary obligation that they 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 agreed for five years so each one has to fulfill it separately now niset now this daughter gets herself gets married she grows up she gets married now her husband is obligated under the terms of the ketubah to provide her for sustenance but that doesn't undo the obligation of her previous two stepfathers they also have to provide her with food it goes even further if these two husbands died then their own daughters uh, will be provided for from the estate by unsold property that's part of the ketubah that the husband will provide for daughters the husband's estate will provide for daughters as long as they're not married but only from unsold property they can't go and take and collect 
um, it's a property that was sold. Whereas this stepdaughter that we've been talking about the whole time, she has even stronger ability than the man's own daughters. She can actually go and repossess leaned property even if it was sold because her status is like a creditor and a creditor can who has a lien on property can go after it the man by saying i will provide for you for five years that's saying i will provide for you this amount of money and it's written in a document and that's it they she can go after the uh after the those assets so now the, the men who were smart if they wanted to make sure not to not to have to do that right they're happy to take care of their stepdaughter while they're married but they, they don't want to take care of that stepdaughter after they're divorced so they would write a condition i will uh provide for your daughter the husband tells his wife for five years as long as we're together um, but if we're divorced, then I'm not paying any more, and then that resolves this whole problem. Okay, good. Now, we're going to relate this Mishnah to the following Machloket. A man goes to his friend and says, verbally, I owe you a hundred dinar. Uh, now, it's not clear. There was no proof that there was any loan before. Maybe there, in fact, was no loan before. The question is, by coming and admitting, I owe you a hundred dinar, does that actually create an obligation, even if there's no written document and no witnesses. Rabbi Yochanan Amar Hayav, Reshakish Amar Patur. Rabbi Yochanan says it does. Once a person comes and says that those words and admits it, then he actually has to pay. Reshakish, according to Reshakish, he says, "No, I didn't. Um, I didn't mean it." I didn't say it with witnesses. I didn't write it. I didn't obligate myself. I just said those words, but they're meaningless. He does not have to pay. So let's analyze. What exactly is the case? If there were people that were around um, at the time and the person saying the statement said, listen, I'm about to say a, a, a declaration. You are my witnesses. Then my Then why would Rashakish doesn't have to pay? If he designates witnesses and he says, I owe you 100 dinar, then certainly that is binding. Everyone would agree. And if he didn't tell to specific people, two or more people, you are my witnesses, then why would he be obligated? He just said things without witnesses. So there's nothing there. Uh, so we don't understand this case. The answer is, so it must be that, no, no there, were, there, there were people around, but he, doesn't, he didn't designate anyone as witnesses. Nevertheless, Rabbi Yochanan will say it's liable because he didn't say it orally, but rather this one guy, he wrote down in a document, an unsigned document. He says, I owe you, he wrote an I owe you, a hundred dinar. And he gave it to the other guy in front of people, even though he didn't designate them. Ryochanan says he is liable, he obligates himself because words that are written down in a document and given over is like saying to the people around, you are my witnesses. It's more official when you give over a, over a note than when you just say something. And so the people around, they saw that, he gave him a note and maybe they know what's in the note as well. And so they'll come, they can come and uh, they can be uh, considered as witnesses uh, because it is written. Shakish says, no, writing an IOU and giving it to him or saying I owe you 100 dinar is the same thing. If you had designated witnesses, fine. No designated witnesses, 
then you do not obligate yourself. There's no difference between the cases. All right, that's the Machloket. We're going to attempt a couple of proofs on behalf of Rabbi Yochanan. Tenan. One is from our Mishnah. From the very opening of the Mishnah, and the Peshat reading of the Mishnah, the opening case is very simple because it's setting up the more complicated after ones afterwards. But um, the Gemara wants it, it's the first clause to have a chidush in itself as well. And so isn't it obvious that if a person decides uh, with his wife that he's going to provide for her, his, his stepdaughter, that of course he has to provide for her. So it must be giving us some new, something new that we wouldn't know before. My love, kiab must be, isn't it's talking about a case like this, where he, the man did not put in the ketubah document itself, with, signed with signatures that he's going to provide, for his stepdaughter, but rather that he wrote a note, an IOU, on a slip of paper, unsigned, and he handed it to his uh, his uh, wife to be. Says, "I will provide for you for your for your daughter for five years." And there were people around, and they did not designate witnesses. And it must be that this is what we're talking about. And the Mishnah says he is liable. That's the chidush of the Mishnah, and that would be a proof for the Biochanan. Okay, but you can see this is not very strong proof because the Mishnah doesn't actually say that this is the case. So we answer, No, the more likely the Mishnah is talking about something called a document of stip- stipulation. This is an unofficial, unsigned uh, document that was is drawn up at the time of the wedding. It's uh, during the negotiation between the um, groom's parents and the bride's parents, and that has a special status. Um, as Rav Gidel said, Amar Rav Gidel, Amar Rav, Kama ata noten libincha, kach vekach. Kama ata noten libitecha, kach vekach. Right? They would um, negotiate. How much are you giving your son, who's coming going into the marriage? They asked the father of the of the groom. He said, oh, I'm going to give this amount. And the other one says, How much are you going to provide for your daughter in the dowry? And the, husband, the father of the bride says, uh, This much. And then they did Kiddushin right after that without making a formal transaction. A formal transaction would be like a Kinyan Chalipin, like we still do today for the Ketubah. You give uh, one party gives the other a handkerchief. By doing that, they show, they concretize, they are transferring, they are obligated to that. But instead, here they're just talking about it. And even if they wrote it in a document, it would only be a document of, of, of record uh, to remember, but they didn't actually do an official transaction with this document. Dav Gidel says that this is a valid document, even though in a normal context, this is basically like an oral agreement. Um, even if there's a note that is a reminder note, um, in a normal context, this would not be binding. But in the context of a wedding, of a wedding where they're about to do the kiddushin, and so this is all within the context of the kiddushin, it is binding, and that's the reason why in our Mishnah uh, it is binding. That's the chidush is to teach us, in fact, that this shtare pisikta. Uh, is a binding document. But we cannot derive from here that in general, if one person gives another an IOU, that that would create an obligation for him to pay. Okay, so we'll try another proof. Uh, also, it's going to fail. Tashima katav lekohen shani chayav lecha hamesh selaim. A man has to do pidyon haben. This is Mishnah in Bechorot. And instead of giving the five coins like we do today, one, two, three, four, five, he writes a document, an IOU. He says, I'm going to owe you five coins. Uh, in that case, does the pidyon work? 
The answer is, So since he gave him the IOU, he does have to pay that amount. But the child, is, there's no pidyon ben. So the reason seems to be because the, he creates a, an obligation, he creates a debt uh, um, by, right, by giving the IOU, and this debt is separate from the pidyon ben. So then he doesn't do pidyon ben, he has to also give the five coins. We're going to see, it's important to actually give coins. And uh, so, but anyway, the point is here that by writing a document, an IOU, and giving it to him in front of people who, even if they're not designated, designated as witnesses, that does in fact create a binding obligation to pay. And that seems like a good proof for it to be Ohanan. But we answer not necessarily. No, in this case is different because this man has to pay the Kohen five Sela'im and according to Torah law, as soon as he has this boy, and uh, the boy becomes uh, 30 days old, now he has to pay, he owes the Kohen the money. And so there is a, a, a the obligation already sets in on a Deoraita level, and so this IOU that he's giving him um, is, uh, only, is only effective because the man already owes the Kohen on the Deoraita level. But if it, in different contexts, not in the context of Pidyon Ben, such an IOU would not create an obligation, there's no proof. Now we ask, Okay, in that case, if the man's already obligated to the Kohen, the five Selim, why did he bother writing an IOU? The answer is, so, so, so he could select the Kohen. He wants to make sure that this Kohen knows that he's going to be the Kohen and not anybody else. So that's why he said, I owe you, you're going to be my Kohen. Okay, now, if that's the case, that this is a Deoraita obligation, that the man is, is uh, giving to uh, this Kohen, and uh, that uh, that automatically sets in. The IOU is just to designate him. But in fact, now he owes the payment. And whenever the payment comes in, comes through, so the pijon haben should work. Why? How come the pijon haben does not work? Um, and he has to oh, go and give five other coins. Answer is In fact, Ula says on a deoraita level that child will be uh, will be redeemed as soon as he gives it. In other words, if a man uh, gives the kohen, the father of the boy gives the kohen an IOU, and uh, then that's followed up by actually giving him coins, then whenever he gives him coins, that will be the pijon. He doesn't owe him also. It doesn't actually create another further debt. So really, this should work as soon as he pays. But the rabbis then came and said, no, we don't want this to work because um, people using documents instead of cash is not a good idea. If we allow them to use some documents, even though technically this IOU would, would work, then people are going to not distinguish and they're going to use other documents like a third-party loan. It's a loan that says someone else owes me five salaim. You know what? I'll sell this to you. I'll give this to you, the Kohen, instead of uh, instead of the uh, five coins that I owe you. You'll just go collect from him. But that's not good because then he's not. He, I'm not paying anything at all. The other guy is going to end up uh, coming to pay, and so this is not good. The father has to actually at some point give money to the uh, to the Kohen. And so that's why the rabbi said, no, we're not going to accept any IOUs at all. And so that's why in this case, if he writes an IOU, we're going to say, okay, you just created yourself a debt. But that, and that, does, that, that doesn't count towards Pijon Haben. But you still have to give actual money. And only once you give the money, then the Pijon Haben is valid.
Now that we rejected those two proofs, Rav is going to try to say that this machloket between the Biochanan and the Shakish, Biochanan says this uh, type of uh, IOU that he gives does create an obligation. The Shakish says no. Rav thinks this is proposes that this is parallel to two Tanaetic opinions. Amarav Ketanae. If you have a loan document and uh, you, then after the, the signatories of the loan document, under that you have a guarantor who, uh, who writes, um, uh, or perhaps not even in his own handwriting, someone writes, this person is a guarantor. Um, so then, that is not official, and uh, according um, according to the Bishmael, as we're going to see, uh, is not official. Nevertheless, the guarantor, the the, the um, creditor, can come and collect from the guarantor's uh, um, unsold property, but won't create a lien on the guarantor's uh, sold property. Normally, if it was a full guarantor and his name was actually written by him or was before. The, the signatories, signatories signed on it, then I would know that this whole loan was made on the basis, on condition of this guarantor uh, guaranteeing it. In this case, however, it's clear that the loan was given, and only afterwards, uh, then the guarantee, guarantor said, okay, I'll fine, I'll be a guarantor. And so that does not create a loan, a lien, but he, uh, he would have to pay it from uh, free land. Um, uh, that and in fact, a case just like this came before the Bishmael. He said that the creditor can collect from the unsold property of the guarantor. However, there's disagreement. Ben said, "No, the creditor cannot collect anything from the guarantor, not from the uh, unsold land, and not certainly not from sold land." Why? How come? Uh, he's, he is a guarantor, and he, his name is on this document. Uh, that he'll be a guarantor. He's admitting he, he is admitting that he is a guarantor. So why not? So Benanas gives him an analogy, a very dramatic analogy. They'll say had a creditor finds the debtor in the marketplace and is strangling him. Give me my money or else I'm going to strangle you right here. And now a friend of the debtor comes along and tells the creditor, leave him alone uh, and I will pay you. Um, so that guy who's now is acting as a guarantor to the loan is not obligated to actually pay because after all, the loan was already already made. The creditor did not extend the credit on the basis of the trust in this friend who came along, right? This was this uh, loan was extended a while ago, and now he's coming to collect it. So therefore, a guarantor that comes after the fact is not obligated, and that's the same thing here. It's less dramatic, but it's the same thing. There's a loan document written up. It's signed by two people. The loan is already there. Later on, a guarantor says, "Oh yeah, I'll I'll, I'll support my friend." Um, but since it comes afterwards, and the and the 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 um, the um, loan was not extended on behalf on the basis of that guarantor, the guarantor is actually off the hook. Okay, so that's the machloket between Bishmel and Ben Nanas. So Rav says, So it seems that Rabbi Yochanan, who said that if someone writes an IOU, 
and gives it in front of some people, even if they're not designated as witnesses, that is binding. And that would be the same thing here, where the person, the guarantor's name is on this document. Basically, it's on an IOU. It's not, it's under the witnesses, so it's below the witnesses, so there are no witnesses to it. And nevertheless, Biochanan says it does create a basic obligation, at least for unsold properties. And that would be the same as a Bishmael. Whereas, according to Reshakish, he would follow Benanas, who says, even though he has his name on on this paper, like an IOU, uh, it does not create a, a binding obligation, and that fits with Rashakish, who says if someone writes an IOU and gives it to someone else, it does not create a binding obligation. Okay, so then we uh, that's possible, but when we say not necessarily, it could be actually that both opinions within Ben Anas they would agree that there's no there's no obligation to pay. According to Ben Anas, this is after the fact, and so the same thing if someone gave an IOU, no, he would not have to pay. But rather, the machloket does not necessarily this doesn't necessarily match up. But it could be that Biochanan and Shakish are both arguing within the opinion of Rabbi Ishmael. Kipligi alibad Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Yochanan ki Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Yochanan simply follows Rabbi Ishmael. Just like Rabbi Ishmael said that the guarantor's name under the doc, under the signatories does create an obligation. So too, someone who gives someone else an IOU will create an obligation. That's simple. Whereas Reshakish could argue that Rabbi Ishmael only said in that case where there was an official loan document that this guy owes that guy money he signed it uh, there are signatories on this document so that the loan document already created a de oraita level uh, a loan and the creditor's land will be lean to it and then the guarantor comes and adds his name to that there Rabbi Ishmael agrees that the guarantor is on the hook for unsold properties. But in this case, where it's just two people and they didn't have any previous relationship, there was no loan out, and now all of a sudden one guy comes and gives an IOU to the other. So this is not piggybacking upon a an already existing Doraita obligation. So even a Bishmael would agree that yes, it can a guarantor can add his name to an obligation, they obligate himself. But um, here, since there is no uh, Deodaita obligation uh, yet, the uh, giving giving the loan document is not going to do anything. And so, therefore, it's not necessarily a machloket, the machloket amoraim is, is not necessarily parallel to the machloket tanaim. All right, one more point about this uh, statement here. Agufa amarav gidel amarav. Now that you mentioned this interesting halacha, let's look more into it. So Rav Gidal already said, when the father of the groom and the father of the bride, they're negotiating how much you're going to give, how much you're going to give, and they come to an agreement, and then they do Kiddushin, even though they only spoke words, they didn't sign any document, they didn't do any formal Kiddushin of Chalipin, nevertheless, since they do Kiddushin right after that, this, they, they, whatever they agreed to is binding. So Rava is thinking about this, and how does this work? All right, so it doesn't have to be some some kind of uh, uh, act of obligation. So he says, I understand this halacha of Rav. Rav Gidal said the name of Rav. Um, if his daughter is a na'ara, because when a, a man's daughter is a na'ara, 
the husband pays the Kiddushin to the father of the bride. And therefore, the father is getting the benefit of the Kiddushin money, and so he actually is getting something physically, and so that would uh, enact the transaction. But if his daughter is a, is, a, is a grown woman, then the daughter herself, she takes the money, not the father doesn't. So then by what, uh, by what act of transmission will the father enact this, uh, this transaction? Uh, so it would seem that maybe uh, Rav's op opinion only uh, applies to Anara, not Bogedet. But then Rav corrected himself. But I know that Rav said it's true even if the bride is an adult. And, and now he'll explain why. Because if you don't say that, then what about the father of the groom? The father of the groom never gets anything at all. And yet, Rav said that um, the father of the groom is obligated to give whatever he agreed to, even though he's not receiving any benefit, any, any, anything monetary, not in any case. Rather, Rav's conclusion is the benefit is not a physical monetary benefit, but rather the pride that the, the father of the groom and the father of the bride are happy seeing that they are their children are getting married to each other. And so based on that, even though it's ephemeral and not a monetary um, uh, um, uh, benefit, nevertheless, that itself is significant enough to enact the transaction. It's as if they are really getting something tangible and thereby um, obligating themselves to give over whatever they said. So even though, for the, even though they only said it orally, it is in fact binding, which is a, uh, kind of a, quite a romantic idea that just the benefit, the happiness, the joy and pride of seeing their children wed has legal significance. We next have a question about this agreement that the bride's father and the groom's father come to uh, right before the Kiddushin. So up above we called it a verbal agreement. The question is, uh, can they write it down? The dif difference between writing it down or not is that if you write something down, like a loan agreement that's written down on an on a official document, then the, um, the creditor can go and collect from leaned property. Whereas if it's only a verbal agreement, then they cannot connect from leaned property. So uh, this agreement, we know that, that will make a big difference whether it can be collected from leaned property or not. So what's the, what's the uh, level of authority of this verbal agreement? So Rav answers, no, you cannot write it down. It does not have that level. Okay, now we're going to have about three questions, challenges to this by Ravinah to Rav Is really, is that true that you can't write it down? Look at our Mishnah. Where we had the case in the Mishnah of this uh, stepdaughter, uh, where the husband uh, assured and during the marriage to his wife that he would take care he, he would take care of feed this stepdaughter for five years and the first husband and the next husband also did that and so if a man wants to make sure he's happy to I don't know happy he agrees to uh, feed his stepdaughter while they're married but he doesn't want to have to go 
and feed her after they get divorced, then he should write down, it says Kotvin, um, uh, that I will only feed the stepdaughter on condition that we are still married. So you see here, it says Kotvin, so that means that they are in fact writing down these stipulations. Um, this is one example of the stipulations that they are agreeing to. So we answer, not necessarily, this is not a, this is not a good proof. My Kotvin omerim, Rav says, the word Kotvin can mean write, but it can also mean say. Uh, now we ask, Really, is that true? Saying something orally? Do we ever use the verb kitiva? Writing? What do we mean to say? Talking? And we answer, in. Yes, Rav says, yes, look at the Mishnah earlier. Mishnah earlier gave an example of a case where the man says to his wife, says to his wife, I will not have any legal dealings with your properties. The properties that you have and you're bringing in, you keep, and I'm not going to go and take them, take any of them. So Rav Asher was able to successfully answer the challenge, but now we have another challenge against Rav Asher, again, who said that this document must not be written down, it's only oral. Uh, look at this, Tashema. Uh, the Mishnah in Baba Batra says one may not write uh, documents regarding Erusin and Nisuin unless both the husband, the bride, and the groom agree. So that means, uh, yeah, you can't write them if they are not both on the same page, but if they both agree, you do write them down. Now, this Mishnah, isn't it talking about these documents of stipulation, of agreement? of what they, each side is going to bring in and do for in, during the marriage. And so we see that they do write them down as long as both agree. Uh, so that's a challenge to Rav Asher. We answer for him, No, we're not talking about the uh, articles of agreement, but rather the actual Kiddushin, just like you give, do Kiddushin with money, where he gives her money, so too he can write down, in a document, and give her the document. That's what we're talking about. That document has to be written um, with her agreement. Um, not only given with her with her agreement, of course that, just like with the money, he, she has to agree and accept the money and accept that she is Mikudeshit now. She has to accept the document, but also when he writes it, and he goes and uh, tells the uh, Sofer, can you write this document? has to be with her knowledge and agreement. So that's what we're talking about. And this opinion would follow up. If a man wrote this document of Haret Mikudesh uh, he had in mind this woman, this bride, but she didn't know about it or didn't agree with it. Then, and doesn't matter if he. If he if he wrote it without her consent, as long as she concedes when she receives it, that's enough. But Abba says say that they he has to also have it written with her agreement, and so that's what the Mishnah is talking about, the actual shtad of kiddushin, and not what we're talking about above here, the documents of of stipulation. So that in fact cannot be written. Okay, so another challenge to Rav Asher Tashema Metu. Back to our Mishnah that says if uh, this uh, woman married husband A and husband B stipulated with both of them that they have to take care of their of her daughter, their stepdaughter, and then those husbands both die, nevertheless their, their estates have to go continue and take care of that 
uh, stepdaughter. And not only that, but their actual daughters, their, their own daughters from the, those marriages, part of the Ketubah stipulation is that uh, once a, a father dies, then his uh, state has to take care of, feed the daughters from that marriage. Uh, but those uh, actual daughters, biological daughters, uh, can only collect from unsold property, whereas the stepdaughter can even collect from sold property that had a lien on it uh, because this stepdaughter is like a creditor. Now, if you're saying she is like a creditor and she can collect from liens, that means it's written down, right? That was the whole question. So this seems to be a proof that you do write down these, or, and you can and you should write down this, these stipulations. The answer is, No, we're talking about a case where the, uh, the, the woman actually made a, uh, an acquisition. They did some kind of kinyan chalipin, and that wife, uh, at the time that they got married, said, uh, you know, I'll, uh, um, here, accept this, uh, this uh, handkerchief. And the guy took the handkerchief and said, okay, yes, I will uh, feed your daughter. But he actually did an act of, uh, that was a transaction. And that's why in this Mishnah, it's uh, it's uh, it's binding. Okay, wait, that doesn't make sense. If he did an actual transaction, then also for his daughters, that would also effect, take effect, and then his daughters would be also be able to collect from a lien because they did a they did a they did a something. So the answer is no. No, maybe the Mishnah is talking about a case where uh, the husband did a kinyan chalipin or some kind of kinyan for the stepdaughter, but not for the own their own daughters that they eventually will have. So this is very difficult because we're now, you know, making very fine distinctions and assuming they did this and then, then, then that, that didn't do that. In this case, in that case, and um, and uh, then the Mishnah by by that point is hardly teaching you anything. So we ask, oh my Pasca. So but then then what's the point of the Mishnah that's giving a law if it only applies to one very very specific case and doesn't even tell us what that case is? So this is not convincing. Rather, rather could be that they he, he did a kinyan for everyone. But the daughter who is alive, the stepdaughter who is alive at the time of the Kiddushin, um, so for that, since she is there, when he does a Kinyan, he says, I accept that I will feed this person, this your, your, your daughter for five years, that works. But the other stipulation regarding their children, their children aren't born yet. So when he makes a, even if he makes a transaction and says, I will feed our daughters after I die, but they're not born yet, so the transaction does not take effect because they don't yet exist. So they can only they only inherit after he dies, and that inheritance cannot take from sold property. Okay, so that would be an answer. However, this is hold on, that does not not sufficient answer because you could have a case where a person makes a stipulation for their own daughters and they are alive at the time of the wedding. How can someone's children be alive at the time of the wedding? The children with, with between that husband and wife, how could they be alive? Well, there could be that they are alive at the time of the Kenyan. For example, that they divorced and then they remarried. So they were married, they had children. They divorced and remarried. The children are at the wedding, the daughters are there too. And it could be in that case, they did a Kenyan, I will feed your stepdaughter from some previous marriage and our daughters from this marriage, they're there right there 
they're they're alive. And yet the Mishnah doesn't make such a distinction. It says no matter what, um, the stepdaughter can take from lien property and the daughters cannot. So this is not a sufficient answer. So rather a different answer to to support Rav Asher is that uh, that we don't write it down is that she the, the stepdaughter is not included in the stipulations of the court and so uh, therefore when he does do a kinyan the kinyan chalipin it works and gives her the authority to take from lien property whereas their own biological daughters from this marriage, they are included in stipulation of betin. Remember we said that even if you know, this person doesn't write a ketubah or doesn't write this clause in the ketubah, it still applies uh, that the, the betin says anyone who gets married, if he die, if the husband, if the man dies, his estate has to take care of the daughters until they get married. And so um, that is already included as a tenai betin so therefore la mehane lo kinyan so when he does a an, an, a kinyan he is in fact making a kinyan for everything but kinyan is not effective for his own daughters now we ask this doesn't make sense should it be worse if anything because it's a tenai betin and he did a kinyan that should be stronger than the stepdaughter for who does not have a tenai betin and he only does it himself so why would it be worse and uh, make it a, 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 a not not have a lien? Rather, the logic is as follows: because his own daughters, because this is included in the condition of the court, the husband, the the, the father of them, the husband of the wife, is going to make sure to give them money. And therefore, we suspect that it could be he gave them bundles of money while he was still alive. Not only because it's naibetin, you could also add that he loves his daughters. He wants to take care of them. He wants to make sure that they take, they're taken care of and don't have to go and fight fight with their brothers about uh, what uh, what to collect. So therefore, since it's likely uh, that the father already gave them cash uh, while he was alive, therefore, yes, while the brothers will still have to feed them, we can't put the burden on uh people that bought the 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 buyers of the property that they should be able to repossess it uh, because it happened often enough that the father took care of them while they were alive so they can't they therefore they lose their right to repossess property because it's so important it's naibetin he's going to make sure to do that whereas the stepdaughter that's not a naibetin people don't generally want to feed their stepdaughters and so there is very little very little chance that he gave them cash while he was alive and so that's why the stepdaughter does have the right to collect from lien property. And so once again, Rav Ashes, uh, so therefore it does not need to be, it, it, it is not written, but it's, it is still effective because um, they uh, did a kinyan in this Mishnah, is assuming that they did a kinyan for that. But otherwise, the conditions of the, uh, of the marriage should not be written and would not be able to collect from lien property. We now move on to analyze the next uh, phrase in the Mishnah that says Lo yomar harishon, uh, the first husband cannot, who now has to uh, is obligated to feed the stepdaughter for five years, even after they get divorced, he cannot say, "Listen, you," uh, he tells his ex-wife, "You or your daughter, you come here and get the food. I mean, if you're living here, fine. Uh, if you want to be fed, you know, come and live here or come and get it yourself. But I don't have to come and and give it to you. No, we don't say that. Instead." The first uh, first husband has to go and take the food or the cash to 
the stepdaughter's house to his to his ex-wife's house to her mother's house um okay so we learn important halacha from this regarding custody this teaches that when after they get divorced the daughter goes and lives with her mother we're talking here about a stepdaughter so that makes a lot more sense it wouldn't be strange if the stepdaughter is going to stay with the stepfather and not with her actual mother um but what we're going to see is that this is going to learn a halacha from this in general uh, you see here the rambam if a mother parents get divorced a daughter stays with her mother permanently even if a mother marries someone else and so on okay so this is uh this affects a you know huge and uh very important topic of custody um all right so hold on how do you know that we're talking about an adult daughter and that's why and and it goes to the mother maybe we're talking about a child, and the only reason why it stays with the mother is because it's a minor daughter. But if it was an adult daughter, then uh, she could um, then uh, wouldn't necessarily go to the uh, to the mother. Maybe uh, adult daughter, the the father, the stepfather here uh, would say, "Listen, if you want to get fed, then you have to come live here. I don't have to go and bring food to you." And now, why would there be a distinction between an adult and a child? Because of the following kind of tragic case, as we're going to see. A man dies and he has a young son. And so the young son is being taken care of by its mother. Now the heirs, this guy who died, also has older sons or adults. And so the heirs of the father uh, come and say, listen, you know, we're responsible for taking care of this child, but he should live with us, right? It's easier for us to feed him, take care of him when he's with us. His mother says, no, it's my, my son, I he's young, he's young, a little kid. I want to take care of him where I live. She, let's say, goes back and lives with her father's in her father's house. Uh, so what's the law? We leave him, we allow the mother to take custody. And we do not leave him with anyone who is worthy of inheriting the deceased father because there's competition between them, right? The people, the, 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 the heirs, they all will take care of him, but they are happier if this kid wasn't around because they're going to have to share their inheritance with this kid. And so uh, what's the chances that they're going to take good care of him if they wish he were gone? And sure enough, there was a terrible case. There was a case where there was a child who was being taken care of, I guess, by his older brothers. Uh, who were all heirs and the older brothers did shechita on their younger brother on Erev Pesach. Uh, very tragic. Why Erev Pesach? Maybe to show that, you know, they were so concerned about this, they became Tameh, they didn't care about Pesach. Well, they didn't care about murder either, so um, they certainly wouldn't care about anything else. But, uh, you know, you wonder if this is uh, maybe the source of blood libels uh, later on. Uh, but because of this terrible, terrible, tragic case, I don't think we assume that most cases are going to be uh, so uh, end in such uh, disaster. But even so, they're not going to really be invested in taking care of the child if the child is in competition with them. Okay, in any case, uh, if this is true, that the, what we're worried about in uh, the child going to the, uh, the, the father's heir's, uh, uh, the, the heir's home is that they will mistreat him and even kill him, then that will only apply to a minor. But if the, uh, the, uh, the per person who's, 
uh, we're, we're dealing with is an adult. So then the adult will be able to take care of himself or herself. And, uh, you know, they're not going to be able to um, get rid of him or her so easily. So maybe the mother only gets custody when it's a child to protect the child. But if it's an adult, then and, and the adult wants to get food from the inheritance, then the other heirs can say, come live here and you can get food if you come here. And it's not true that they would have to go that, uh, and 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 then and they, it's not true that they could go to the mothers with the mother. So we answer no. If that, if we're only current concerned about safety, then it could have just said that the heirs have to take the food to wherever she is, that daughter. Why does it say wherever her mother is? It seems to be emphasizing specifically that the mother not only. Uh, not only that the the heirs can't take care of the child uh, to protect, but it sounds like the mother specifically gets has the right, and that would apply to a child or an adult. So we conclude from here that a daughter after divorce, and uh, this conclusion is generalized, so a stepdaughter, a full daughter, uh, would go to the mother, and it doesn't matter if it's an adult, we're talking about here adult 12, 13, um, uh, or a child, well, anytime, uh, uh, even if she's older than that, if she's not married, she's living with someone, and so she, um, the mother has the right to uh, take her, and the heirs will have to bring her her food and sustenance to wherever she lives. Baruch Adonai Amen v'Amen.